Amen. You may be seated. This is going to be more fun than preaching to an empty building. All right, Um, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. So when you think of spiritual warfare, what what do you you tend to think of? Uh, Some people think about casting out demons. Uh, Other people may may think about supernatural power encounters between angels and evil spirits. Others may may think about things that are sensationalistically spooky, kind of like a a bad low-budget horror movie. Uh, There are all kinds of pictures of what spiritual warfare is, but almost no one associates it with where the Apostle Paul is going to take us in Ephesians chapter 5. Most people see Paul's discussion on the armor of God in chapter 6 as the warfare section of the book. And and what we don't appreciate is that the whole book of Ephesians is a manifesto on spiritual warfare. We see uh, implicit and explicit allusions to the cosmic warfare in every chapter in this book. In fact, the, the key spiritual warfare statement in Ephesians, I think, is not in chapter 6, but in chapter 3, where we find there that most amazing statement from the Apostle Paul that God's plan for us is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church is meant to serve as a sign to the satanic powers that they've been defeated. Because the church is full of people who formerly were in captivity to the devil, who formerly lived in hatred towards God and hatred towards fellow man, but where there used to be division and discord, Jesus has brought unity and reconciliation through the gospel as he creates a new people, a new society. A society that is uh, full of people that are loving and patient and humble with one another, speaking words that build up, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave. And to live as God's new people, we discovered last week in chapter 5 that we must be filled with the Holy Spirit, which produces heartfelt love and worship and thanksgiving and, where we left off last week in verse 21, an attitude of submission where the members of the church are considering the needs and interests of others above their own. And, and folks, this has everything to do with spiritual warfare because a church that is behaving in this way is repudiating the satanic powers and waving the banner of Ephesians 3.10 in the devil's face, declaring Christ's triumph over them as we prove to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God is wise that the gospel is true, and that the gospel has indeed brought reconciliation and has delivered his people from the captivity of the evil one. We, we prove that in how we as a church live and interact with one another. And in the middle of a book on spiritual warfare, Paul starts writing about something that at first seems very unrelated and even mundane, and that's everyday life in the home. What we have in chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9, is essentially a household code. I'm going to trip up on that the whole sermon. Household code. I've been practicing saying it. You say it fast five times and you'll see what I mean. In ancient political philosophy, household codes arose from the notion that for any society to thrive, there needed to be some sort of structure and order in the most basic unit in that society, which was the home. And with these codes came common assumptions. One is that there needed to be a leader. And that leader, whether that was the husband, the father, the master, uh, that leader was expected to structure things in the home for his own comfort, using his position and authority to rearrange things in such a way uh, that that led to that comfort. Uh, The husband was the boss. Women were seen as inferior. Children more so. Slaves at the bottom of the heap. And in these ancient households, uh, the use of power and position to get what you wanted was commonplace. Uh, Just lording your authority over others, that was just expected. That was just the way it was. And humility and meekness 
was seen as weak and even harmful to the civilization. But the book of Ephesians has been consistently calling us to see everything in our lives through a different lens in the world because God is building a new civilization, a new spirit-filled people living in a radically countercultural way that repudiates the powers and principalities that hate God and the gospel and puts the wisdom of God on display to the universe. And so in our text today, as Paul continues to talk about this new spirit-filled society, the church... He turns his attention to the most basic unit in that society, the home. And Paul gives us a household code, a new code for a new people, where the gospel turns everything on its head in shocking and surprising ways. So with that said, and I've been waiting to say this for a long time, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're going to start our reading In verse 22, it's right after Paul says in verse 21 that the Spirit-filled church should be marked by an attitude of humble submission. We're going to start in verse 22 and read on down through chapter 6, verse 9. Holy Spirit says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Pray with me. Father, it is so good to read your word alongside of the people of God, and uh, and we pray for your blessing upon that reading and and upon my preaching and upon the congregation's hearing, so that we might have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So that's a pretty long section. I'm not, we're not going to have time to just, you know, exposit and break down every single verse in this household hold code. There I go again. Um, but hopefully by the time you leave, you're going to get the major high points and, and, and the biggest takeaways from this section. And hopefully that'll whet your appetite for your own personal study uh, in this section of scripture uh, on your own, uh, maybe even this, this week. Uh, Paul's expectation in verse 21 that the members of a spirit-filled church have a submitting attitude towards one another does not by any means do away with hierarchical uh, authority structures in the home and in the church. Some think that verse 21 teaches that. I think they're wrong. Uh, Verse 21 does not do away with authority structures. Instead, it transforms them in light of the gospel. Now, often when Christians today read this section in Ephesians, and, uh, they, they tend to be shocked by the wrong things. We're, we're shocked by the things that aren't supposed to shock us, and we're not shocked by the things that should rattle us to the core. Now, we'll see how you do with that this morning as we go through this. Um, the first thing Paul turns our attention to is the spirit-filled marriage. 
the Spirit-filled marriage. Again, all this is flowing from uh, uh, Paul's exhortation a few verses earlier that we be not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. And and these are manifestations of the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-filled marriage. The, The most important thing that Paul says about marriage in this section is found actually at the end of the chapter. Uh, you go down to, to verse 32, Paul says, this mystery, he's talking about marriage, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's really important. That's really important. Marriage primarily is not about you. Marriage is about God, and almost no one believes that. Not, not in the first century when Paul wrote this, and certainly not in the 21st century, but the Bible is clear. The ultimate meaning of your marriage is not bound up in romantic love, procreation, or companionship, as wonderful as those things are. Ultimately, your marriage is meant to put on display to the world and to the powers the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. It is to be a living parable of the gospel with the husband playing the role of Jesus and the wife playing the role of the church. In this, Jesus is magnified and exalted. Now, with that in mind, we can back up to the beginning of the passage, verse 22, where Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, let's travel back in time in our minds to the first century when this letter was being read to the congregation at Ephesus. How do you think the congregation reacted when Paul said, wives, submit to your own husbands? There was no reaction. That, That was not shocking to anybody. Of, of, co- of course wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Tell us something we don't know, Paul. Nobody was sweating. Nobody was getting nervous. Uh, this would not have been controversial in the least. Verse 23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So the wife's submission to her husband is rooted in the fact that God has designed the husband to be the head of the wife, and it is analogous to Christ's headship over the church. Now, while none of this would have been shocking to the church in Ephesus, you better believe that it is shocking to 21st century Americans. Uh, The notion that the husband is the head of the wife, that he is the leader and she is to follow, seems antiquated. And it offends our cultural sensibilities. And so we immediately want to stand up and say, well, this can't be. Uh, Men are not superior to women. And you're right. The Bible never says men are superior to women. But, But our mistake is that we tend to equate submission with inferiority. But when the Bible talks about submission and headship, that's not what it's talking about. Case in point, 1 Corinthians 11.3, which says that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. Now, check this out. This is what I want us to focus on. And the head of Christ is God. Put a pin in that while we also consider 1 Corinthians 15, where we are given a glimpse of the, of the end of the age where God places everything in submission or subjection under Christ, and then we are told <clears throat> that when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, Jesus, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So, and, and the word there translated subjected is the same, is the form of the same Greek word used in Ephesians 5 in regards to the submission of the wife. God is the head of Christ, and Christ will be subjected to him in eternity future. And yet, Jesus is equal to God the Father in his deity. Jesus is equal to the Father uh, in his dignity, in his power. Jesus is no less God than the Father, no less valuable than the Father, no less worthy than the Father. Jesus is not God Jr. Jesus is 100% God. So, the, the, the point here is that submission does not necessarily uh, uh, equate with intrinsic inferiority or, or anything like that. Now, now of course, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, uh, talking about every, the head of every man is Christ, we know that, that Christ actually is superior to mere mortals. But in regards to the relationships in the Godhead, 
uh, between the Father, Son, and Spirit, there, there is no, uh, uh, the, the distinctions of roles and functions within the Godhead doesn't diminish any member of the Godhead. So when, when it talks about here Jesus being in subjection to the Father, uh, we, we have to realize that Jesus is still equal to the Father in, in all of those things that I just mentioned. In the same way, wives are equal to their husbands in their humanity, in their worth, in their importance, in their dignity. A wife is not inferior in any of those things, and yet God has designed marriage in such a way whereas she is to submit to her husband because wives have a certain role to play in God's living parable that marriage is meant to convey. And the distinction of roles and function within marriage doesn't diminish anyone in the marriage. And of course, it's important to note that Christ's submission to the Father is a willing, joyful submission. It's not forced. It's not coerced. And likewise, in, uh, in Ephesians 5.22, that's written in the middle voice in the Greek, which suggests that the wife is submitting herself. Uh, the, the wife is willingly submitting. The husband isn't forcing submission. That's not his job. It's not his responsibility. Bible never tells you to try to make your wife submit. Husbands, if you try to do that, you're sinning. You, you violated Ephesians 5.22 by preventing your wife from voluntarily doing it. So back off and you focus on being the husband that you're called to be, and I'll have more to say to you in a moment, guys. But wives... Your willing, happy, joyful, eager submission to your husband is meant to declare to the powers and principalities something about the relationship that the church has with Jesus. It declares that while at one time we lived like we were autonomous, doing what we wanted to do, being the captain of our own ship, so to speak, in rebellion against Christ, the gospel has now changed our hearts, reconciled us to Christ, and we gladly follow his leadership. And ladies, Humble, joyful submission will not be easy for you for two and very important reasons. Number one, you're still a sinner. And you have desires within you that will want to control and dominate your husband. God tells Eve in Genesis 3, 6 that your desire will be contrary to your husband. She shall want to manipulate her husband so that he is ultimately serving her ends. Every daughter of Eve will feel that pull, but the spirit-filled wife will fight to kill that desire. And it is crucial that you do, wives, lest in that living parable you paint a picture of a church that is desiring to control and manipulate Christ. Now, the other reason why submitting to your husband is going to be so hard is because while, yes, you are to submit to him as the church submits to Jesus, guess what? Your husband ain't Jesus. And can I get an amen from the ladies on that one? (laughs) Not even close to Jesus. Y'all, it's hard enough to submit to the perfect Lord and God of the universe. (laughs) But submitting to other sinners, that, that kicks it up a notch, doesn't it? Big time. So, wives, God has called you to do something really hard to submit and serve imperfect, flawed, and sometimes boneheaded husbands like us. I get it. So wives, this is going to take great humility on your part, but no more humility than what Christ exercised in serving you, a sinner. I think it's also helpful for us to consider what submission is not to help us to understand what it is, because this has been warped and perverted by lots of people, even some who call themselves Christians. Submission is not following your husband into sin. Wives, your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. You got that? He's God. God's authority is supreme in your life, not your husband's. If your husband ever tries to lead you into sin, you have the right and responsibility to say what the apostle Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And, and, and if, you, if you're a member of the church and your husband is trying to pressure you into sin, you need to let the church know about that because it sounds like it's some time for church discipline. Submission is not putting up with abuse. If you're being abused, the godly thing to do is to report that to the authorities immediately 
and do everything that you can to get into a safe place. And, and, and that is something that you also ought to inform the church about so we can help you. The, the church should have your back in this because the church should never be a safe place for abusers to hide in their sin. Submission is not mindless obedience. It's not withholding your opinion. It's not being mistreated, treated like a slave, disrespected, demeaned. Or or it's not refraining from disagreeing or critiquing or giving advice. It's not husbands micromanaging and preventing their wives from making decisions on their own. It's certainly not a husband suppressing his wife's gifts, talents, and interests where she, where, to the point where she's unable to benefit the home and the church according to her strengths. A husband would be a fool to do that. A husband would be a fool to, to not heed the good counsel of his wife. A husband would be a fool to not, not at times change course based on her wisdom. Uh, The Bible describes the wife as a helper to her husband. You know why? Because, y'all, we need help. (laughs) We need a lot of help. And a husband's a fool to refuse it. Proverbs 31.11 speaks to to, to that when it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will lack no gain. Indeed, that same chapter speaks of the godly wife as gifted, uh, industrious, and intelligent, not exclusively confined to the home, but even making business decisions that help the home. Clinton Arnold defines spirit-filled submission in this way, uh, as, as the wife cultivating an attitude of affirming, supporting, and respecting her husband's leadership without holding back certain areas where she wants to assert or maintain control. Spirit-filled submission is not just an outward thing, it's an inward disposition of her heart attitude towards her husband. Ephesians 5.33 says that the wife should respect her husband, and the Apostle Peter in his first epistle describes such a, such a wife as one who is not trying to concert, assert control, but instead exhibits a gentle and quiet spirit, even speaking well uh, uh, to their husbands. First uh, Peter 3 notes that Sarah called Abraham Lord. Now, husbands, don't go crazy with this. When you get in the car, don't expect your wife to call you Lord. But in that time, in that day and age, that was a, that was a way of, of, of addressing and talking about your husband in a respectful way. There's different ways to do that now. The, the, the point is that even her words and her tone express that humble, submissive servant heart that godly wives should have. So sometimes wives may outwardly submit, but, but maybe they, they grumble about it or they, or they, or they kind of lash out in their, in their tongue with their tone and, and some of their words uh, to their husband in a way that, that, that doesn't reflect that kind of submissive heart that the scriptures are talking about. Now, now again, when Paul says... What Paul says about wives shocks the sensibilities of 21st century modern people, not first century people. But as we move on to what Paul says about husbands, <laughs> doesn't, shock us, doesn't shock us in the 21st century, uh, we, we, we look at this like it's no big deal. But it shook the first century church in Ephesus to the core. And if any husband in here is, is really paying attention to what Paul is saying to the husbands, it's going to shake you to the core big time. Again, let's, let's, let's go back in time to this Ephesian church as this letter is being read to them. Paul starts by talking about wives submitting to their husbands. I can just see some husbands just nodding their heads. Mm-hmm. Preach it, Paul. I'm glad he's saying that. Wives submit to your husbands. I'm in charge around here. She just needs to get in line. But then... Paul drops a megaton bomb right on top of the husbands in the church in Ephesus. Watch out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All of a sudden, the men are sweating, they're getting nervous. Some might be sinking a little lower into their seats. Some may have their eyes shut and their heads bowed low in shame. And the women in the church are smiling from ear to ear. Some of us have read this passage so many times that we don't feel the weight of it anymore. 
So, so many of us are so busy being shocked by, by wives submit to your husbands that we aren't floored by what Paul says to the husbands, which is the most gloriously outrageous statement in this section. Indeed, what we are reading here is one of the most amazing and elevating and liberating and loving things ever written for women, both in the first century and today. If you don't, if you, if you don't realize that, then, then you, don't, you don't know anything about Jesus and his relationship to the church. Is the husband to be the leader of the wife? Yes. But, but when most people think of leadership, what do they think of? Dominance. Getting people to obey. Right? I, I've been in the corporate world before and, and worked under leaders and bosses and managers, and that, that's how they often they lead. It's just about just whipping everybody in shape, getting everybody in line, doing everything that I want them to do. We see leadership as something where everything is about me, it's about serving me, it's about people devoting themselves to me and my agenda and my cause and my priorities. After God told Eve in Genesis 3, 16, that her desire will be contrary to her husband, he then says, the man will rule over you. In other words, as she seeks to manipulate and control him, he's going to sinfully seek to control and subjugate her, putting her under his thumb and dominating her. And and we have centuries of misogyny and the oppression of women to prove God's word to be true on that point. That's what sin does. So sin is, is, is affecting and twisting the hearts of both the women and the men in these relationships. But this kind of hyper-authoritarian, dictatorial leadership is according to the ways of this world. It's profoundly pagan. It's, it's what the Ephesians would have come out of and what they would have been used to, but, but it's a, a perverted twisting of the husband's role, and the satanic powers are happy with that kind of leadership. They love it. In Mark chapter 10, James and John come up to Jesus and they have a small request. They ask to sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand during Jesus' coming reign over the universe in the next age. No big deal, just a little request. Can you think of a more audacious request than that? I know sometimes we're selfish in our prayers, but goodness gracious. They wanted to be second and third command in Jesus' future cosmic empire with the world serving them. And when the other disciples heard about this, how do you think they felt? They were mad. You know why? Because they wanted to be in charge. Why, why didn't we think of this first? And, and we're told in, in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, that's, that's the way of this world, how, how, how it happens, just dominance, putting people under your thumb. And then he says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Headship is not bar- bossing your wife around. It's not barking orders. It's not expecting her to arrange everything in the home according to your ways and your preferences and your priorities and your comforts, making it all about you. That's how the old, pagan, worldly, satanic household codes were. Yes, Caesar may be Lord, but I'm a close second, and this is my castle, and so it's all about me. And and you view your wife's main role as, as, as a role of serving you to make your life easier. That's not headship. And neither is the opposite extreme headship where you've got total passiveness. And and I I probably have heard this complaint from wives more than I have about the other end of it in regards to the hyper-authoritarians. I've heard it even more often in regards to women being frustrated about the super passivity of their husbands and the lack of leadership. And by the way, that was Adam's first sin in Genesis 3 where he stood by and let Eve be ensnared by the devil's lies. He was so passive. He should have grabbed that serpent, threw it down, and crushed it with his feet. 
but he, but he didn't. He, he let his wife be destroyed by the serpent, and another would have to come later on to crush the head of the serpent. So, take your extreme. What, whether it's, woman, bring me my chips and beer while I watch the game, or if it's, I've been working hard all day and I'm tired, and so I'm just going to come home and passively withdraw from my wife and kids so I can escape, watch TV, play video games, and bury myself in my hobbies. Either of those are not biblical headship. Both ways are about serving self. Biblical headship says, I may be tired, I may be exhausted, but I'm going to lead my family, I'm going to be there for them, I'm going to love them, I'm going to take this family's needs on my shoulders even when I am exhausted. There's there's no loophole here. The Bible doesn't say husbands love your wives unless you're really tired. Love your wives when they love you back. Love your wives when they submit to you. That's not what it says. I mean, if Jesus' love for us was predicated on our submission to him, are you kidding me? We'd be in a world of hurt, y'all. You want to lead? You want to be a leader? Jesus says, serve. Humble yourself. Stoop low and die. Die to yourself, die to your comforts, die to your preferences, die to your agenda, and live to serve and bless and benefit your wife. You're going to be, you want to be first? Then be last. Be a slave to her. That's the measure of true leadership. That's the biblical way to exercise authority. And Jesus sets himself up as the ultimate model when he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ doesn't relinquish his authority, but he nevertheless leads by serving. And and the purpose of his self-sacrificial service is to benefit his bride. And so Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church, for the benefits and interest of his bride, the church. Whereas the ancient household codes had the husbands arranging everything in the home for his own comfort and benefit, the standard that Paul gives us in Ephesians is 180 degrees opposite where the, where, where the husband is living in such a way and arranging everything in the home to bless and benefit and build up his wife. And, and you can see how so different this is than the ways of this world and how the gospel turns everything on its head. As opposed to women being diminished and demeaned, this household code exalts and elevates women. And as with the wives, the husband's role as a servant is not merely outward, but a disposition and attitude of the heart. Colossians 3.19 exhorts husbands to not be harsh with their wives. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're heirs, they're co-heirs, equal in the inheritance that's coming. Husbands, how are you playing the role of Jesus in your home? How are you serving her? How are you blessing her and devoting your life to her well-being? Are you, are you praying for her and praying with her and leading the children spiritually and taking the lead in, in family devotions and, and being a spiritual leader? In every single way you interact with your wives, you are either telling the truth about Jesus or you're telling lies about him and slandering him. If you neglect your wife, you're sending a message that Jesus neglects his church. If you insult and degrade your wife, you're saying Jesus is that way towards his bride. If you selfishly use your bride to meet your own needs, you're saying that's what Jesus does for the church. If you're unfaithful to your wife, whether by adultery, looking at porn, treating your work or hobbies as more important, you're saying that Jesus is unfaithful to the church. Remember, y'all, marriage is not about you. It's about God. The stakes are high. And your home is ground zero for spiritual warfare as you fight for your marriage against the powers. Now, some of you husbands may be saying, Deemer, it sounds like you've been talking to us longer than you were talking to the wives. Well, it's the price you pay for being a leader, I guess. 
But we'll move on now. I spent most, most of my time on the marriage section because Paul spends most of his time on that. But two other quick things I want us to look at and then we're done. And that's the spirit-filled family. The spirit-filled family. Verse 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. I want to talk to you kids for a moment. Uh, if you're a teenager, if you're younger, if you're a Christian, you're to be filled with the Spirit. You are to let God's Word live in your hearts in such a way that the Holy Spirit is influencing how you live in the home and how you treat mom and dad. This is a big deal. Spirit-filled Christian children obey their parents. That doesn't mean that, that you're perfect. It doesn't mean your parents are perfect, of course. And, 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 and it doesn't mean that, of course, kids, that you, you never mess up in this area, you never do anything wrong. What it means, though, is that your general bent is going to yield to the authority of mom and dad. But... As with the authority of husbands, the authority of parents is not more important than God's authority. Obeying God always comes first. But know that to the degree that your parents are leading you in the, in the things of God and you're obeying your parents, you are obeying the Lord. And, and when you're not obeying your parents, then you're not obeying God. It's, it's, this is a big deal. And I want you to notice something else about what the Bible is telling you, kids. It's, it's not just that you're supposed to obey your mom and dad. Verse 2 says, honor your father and mother, which means really respect your mom and dad. Really respect them. Regard them as really important. Really treat them well. It's not just about outward obedience, Right? A lot of times, kids, you'll outwardly obey your mom and your dad, and yet you've got a real bad attitude about it, and you've got a real bad attitude towards your parents about it, and, and maybe even, uh, especially with some of you older kids, maybe sometimes even harsh words, harsh tone, disrespect comes out of your mouth. Watch yourself, because it's not just about raw obedience. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So check yourself and check your heart. Uh, Proverbs thirty-one twenty-eight, speaking of the godly woman, says that her children rise up and call her blessed. Kids, have you ever done that? First thing in the morning, get up, see your mom. I'm going to call you blessed. Well, no, it, it means to say something nice about her. God isn't just interested in outward obedience, but that you might honor them. Now, Again, none of this is surprising to us, and none of this is surprising to the first century church, but we're again about to approach something that would have been shocking to them and maybe to some of us. You would expect that Paul then would turn around and say, now children, don't make your parents angry, but he instead turns the tables, and he says in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Huh? Really? Andrew T. Lincoln explains that this prohibition forbids excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross sensitivity, insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. This, this kind of unfair, unjust treatment provokes children to anger, and understandably so. Now, Paul here is addressing fathers, not because mothers aren't capable of that kind of sinful parenting, but because fathers are the leaders. They're the heads of the homes and should lead the way in godly parenting. And in first century Roman and Jewish societies, fathers were known to rule over their children with a harsh, dominating, heavy-handedness. And of course, that kind of parenting isn't restricted to the ancient world. It happens all the time today. When fathers regularly explode in anger and rule by fear and intimidation. Again, that's leading according to the ways of this world. And it pleases the satanic powers. This is kind of parenting that is all about using my anger to manipulate the home in such a way that creates an environment that is pleasing and convenient for me. And that that kind of parenting in the long haul not only provokes your children to anger, but Colossians 3.21 says that they will become discouraged. Now, 
Paul shows us that the spirit-filled father is on the one hand not jettisoning discipline altogether, uh, but is instead, as, uh, as Paul says, he's bringing up his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, the word discipline there carries the idea of training, training them in the ways of the Lord, teaching them about God, instructing them about God in all different kinds of ways throughout life. This is not just about corporal punishment. That's typically how we think about verses like that. This is a comprehensive training up of a child in the ways of God. You see, it's easier, the problem is, is that it's easier for me as a parent to get angry and lash out at my kid who's annoying me than it is to lovingly engage him and direct him to God. Because in those moments, it's not about God. It's all about me. And I'm mad because I'm inconvenienced. I'm not mad because, I'm not upset because he's sinning and dishonoring God. I'm making it instead all about me and what I want. Harsh parenting comes because we see our kids' disobedience as more of a hassle that's getting in the way of what we want as opposed to seeing their disobedience as gospel moments. And, and opportunities, uh, moments where I can exercise gospel-based uh, grace and gospel-based discipline for my child's own good. Because my leadership in the home isn't about serving me. It's about blessing and serving others. So again, we see submission to authority, but then we see God regulating that authority and bending it in a godly, benevolent, servant-oriented direction. And we see the exact same thing in our final closing Point, and that's the spirit-filled workplace. And here we get on, uh, in, into instructions on, on slaves and masters. Uh, the ESV here translates it as bondservant, but, but literally the word there is, is slave. Now, the, the, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but the, the kind of slavery going on in the Roman Empire wasn't like the slavery in America. It wasn't race-based, and people of all kinds of backgrounds could find themselves as a slave for a variety of reasons, and some, some became slaves voluntarily to, to pay off debt or to, to change their, their current situation. Uh, some slaves were officially bound under contract to serve their master for seven years, and, and when the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a freedman. Now, now, while there were some slaves that were treated well, and, and some experienced a decent life as, as teachers or powerful managers of large wealthy estates. Others experienced great difficulty and were subject to exploitation and abuse and were demeaned and disrespected and they just they had limited rights in the empire. Now, now a third of the population of Ephesus were slaves. A third of them. And they were considered an integral part of the family. So that's why they're included in this household co- code. And I want you to notice how Christ-centered his instructions are for slaves. In verse 5, he says, they're to obey their masters with a sincere heart and serve as they would serve Christ. So the slave is genuinely, sincerely interested in serving and blessing his master, dying to his own preferences for the good of the master. Verse 6 says, work not by way of eye service. In other words, you're not just working hard and working well when the boss is watching You're instead to work with integrity at all times, realizing that ultimately you're a slave to Christ. In other words, Jesus is your true boss and master, and he's always watching you, so work for him. Verse 7, rendering good service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Now, in light of this, John Stott writes that the Christ-centeredness of this instruction is striking, The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have broadened. He's been liberated from the slavery of men-pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. His mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. Now, there are no slaves in this room this morning, but some of you are employees, and depending on who you work for, you might feel like a slave sometimes. Uh, but if these verses describe the attitude that God calls the first century spirit-filled slave to, how much more the spirit-filled Christian employee today? Uh, your job isn't just about a paycheck. It's not just about making ends meet. It has everything to do with service to God and serving others because your life isn't just about you and your kingdom anymore. 
That's how it was before you came to Christ. Now it's about God and his kingdom. Verse nine, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. One commentator notes that this exhortation would have been shocking and outrageous to the first century slave owner. What do you mean masters do the same to them? What? I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I I do what I want to do. It's about him serving me. He's, He's the servant in this situation. But the gospel changes everything. It radically transforms relationships within all authority structures. Do the same to them, masters. Treat your workers well. Do good to them. Serve them. Bless them. The gospel levels all of the relationships in the household. No one is intrinsically superior or intrinsically inferior. All are on equal footing before God. You have the same master in heaven, and he shows no partiality, and he's watching you both. Now, none of you here are slave owners, but some of you are in authority over others in the workplace. And Paul's exhortation is a reminder that your identity in Christ transforms your use of authority and, 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 and it transforms how you treat and view in general anyone who's under you, but in particular Christians who are under you. You may be the boss, but that worker is still your brother or your sister. You share the same master in heaven. So treat those under you accordingly. You see, the gospel becomes the new lens. It becomes the new paradigm by which you view reality and and how you view the most intimate and personal relationships in your life, in marriage, in the family, in the workplace. And in those relationships, God is calling you to, to be something radically different. The satanic powers at one time had us in bondage, and therefore husbands and wives were at odds with one another. Children and parents were at war with one another. Workers and bosses were self-serving and self-seeking. Everyone was trying to control and manipulate everyone else for their own ends because everybody wanted to be their own Lord. And that's all changed now. The gospel has, has turned everything on its head. Jesus is Lord, not us. And all relationships now are put in their proper place under him as the old order of things is passing away and every dimension of life is transformed in such a way that it repudiates the powers that ruled over that old order and it moves us in a new direction. This is all about spiritual warfare. As husbands and wives finally lay down their arms and are reconciled. As God turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, as Malachi 4.6 prophesies. As even slaves and masters see themselves as equal brothers, not as someone to use or someone who gets in the way of what I want, but someone to love and someone to serve. As we, as we live out that earth-shattering truth that we find in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That reality changes everything. Now, in closing, if you're not a Christian, the most important response that you can make to this message is not, man, I've got to be a better wife or a better husband or better parent or kid. I gotta be a better boss or employee. The instructions here in Ephesians five and six are for those who have already been delivered from their captivity from the powers. If you're not a Christian, you're still in captivity. You're still in bondage to your own sin. And you'll never be able to on your own without the spirit live the kind of life you should live. And you will be bound up in your sins in constant rebellion against God until the moment comes when you are judged by God, when you stand before Him. And so your first priority is not figuring out how to serve the other people in your life. Your first priority is for you to lay down your pride and let Christ serve you. Christ, on that night that He was betrayed, laid aside His outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist like a servant. He got down on his knees 
and he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus, the ruler of the cosmos, the king of kings and the lord of lords, was doing a task that was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. And one of his disciples had, had, had actually rejected that. You can't serve me in that way. And Jesus is like, if you don't let me serve you in this way, you won't have any part in me. And what he did that night was an illustration of what he was about to do in just a few hours, where he would serve his people by being nailed to a cross, which was a manner of execution reserved for the worst of criminals and slaves. He died, taking on his back all the sins his people committed, sins of greed, lust, pride, anger, self-centeredness, all those sins punished in him so that whoever would turn from their sins and by faith receive his great act of service to the world would be forgiven, would be rescued from the powers, reconciled to God, made into a new person, and brought into his family, his household. And if you are a Christian, then know that that as the church lives according to this new household code, We are declaring the triumph of Christ to the powers and striking a blow for the glory of God in spiritual warfare, displaying the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Your marriage matters. The parent-child relationship matters. Your life and interactions on the job matter, and the stakes, y'all, are way higher than some of you have ever imagined. And here's what you need to know. As we seek out, as we seek to live out our high and holy calling, According to our new identity in Christ, the satanic powers hate us. The last thing that they want is to see the wisdom of God displayed in this church and in your marriage and in your family, which means that your rescue from the kingdom of darkness doesn't mean smooth sailing from here on out. On the contrary, before you are a Christian, you could fly under Satan's radar because you are a subject of his kingdom. Now that you're a Christian, you've got a big target on your back, and this church does also. Because though, we re- though when we received Jesus, the battle for our souls ended, on the other hand, the battle for God's glory in your life and in this church has just begun, because the devil does not take lightly defectors from his kingdom, which means that it's time to suit up for battle. And that's where things are headed in Ephesians chapter 6, starting next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that the power of your word is cutting through this powerless teacher, this mere vessel of your word that you'll do things through your word that I can't do, which is land on people in a, in a, in a way that is, is convicting, in a way that is encouraging, in a way that is healing, in a way that's transforming. Help us, Father, to live out the reality of the gospel in all of our relationships and protect us from the schemes of the devil who will want to do everything that he can to undermine lives that are trying to declare the triumph of Christ over the powers. Strengthen us individually. Strengthen this church. And thank you, God, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.